Isn't that a fun tune? That is a cut from the new musical, an adaptation of A Christmas Carol called A Red Carol, written by my guest today. In fact, uh, my guest is a mover and shaker in the uh, Bay Area theater scene. Uh Uh-huh, that's right. And not only is he a a gifted director and actor, but he is also a very well-established playwright. He's the resident playwright for the San Francisco Mime Troupe. The San Francisco Mime Troupe. A troupe of mimes. Not the kind of mimes you think, though. Yes. You'll find out if you listen. His plays uh, have been the biggest hits of the Mime Troupe's history. His adaptation of a Dickens Christmas Carol, which opens tonight, A Red Carol, uh, is available on the website of the San Francisco Mime Troupe and will also be playing on numerous radio stations throughout the country and perhaps the world for the next couple of weeks. His uh, 1984 critically acclaimed play, uh, a stage adaptation of George Orwell's classic novel, 1984, opened at uh, the Los Angeles Actors Gang Theater under the direction of the Academy Award-winning actor Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins. That's impressive. I have to say that. I find that very impressive. Um, it, It has had repeated extended runs in Los Angeles. It's toured Australia, Europe, Asia, Central and South America, and 40 of our 50... How many states do we have? 50 states. We don't have 52. No, 50 states. Why do you always want to say there are 52 states? I don't know. Um, Yeah, Michael J. Sullivan is my guest today. And uh, he is a stalwart, uh, one of the most influential, influential, influential theater artists in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it was my pleasure to speak with him. Uh. I'd only met uh, Michael uh, because I've auditioned for him maybe 15 times. (laughs) Uh, So it was actually fun to to have a real conversation with him rather than uh, being in the audition room doing my monologue and song and saying thank you very much, goodbye. But seriously, um, this is one of my favorite uh, conversations that I've had since the green room has been on air and uh, it's been my pleasure. And um, I, I, I am so glad that uh, our mutual friend, Michael, uh, the Bime troops publicist, Lawrence Hellman uh, got us together to do this show. So uh, without any further ado, folks, Michael, Gene Sullivan. There we go. Hmm. Hey, Michael. <laughs> hey, how you doing, Ray? I'm okay. How are you? Okay. All right. I've been recording all day, also, so I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got to record all the. There are a lot of songs in Red Carol, and so I've got to. I've been recording them all morning, and so they can send them off. To me, basically, <laughs> me and the musical director, <laughs> and then we'll, you know, and, and the uh, audio engineer, and we'll be putting them together. Yeah, so uh, Red Carol has as music. Uh, mm-hmm. 
It's not a musical, though. It's a it's a play. With no, music. it is not a musical. It, it's it's weird because you know most mime troupe shows, despite the fact that we people think that we do silent mime, um, not only we do not silent mime, we do musicals. What I tell people sometimes is a mime troupe show is like seeing a Broadway play, only it has a point. Um, <laughs> and it's small, and we do it on our little stage, and we take it around, and we're obviously advocating for th- things but not just preaching you know yeah. to the audience yeah and so the shows are always musicals or almost always musicals whereas uh red carol is a play with music yes you know uh it the the songs exist inside the show in a different way there's a christmas caroling choir that scrooge hears outside of his you know counting house slash bank things like that or the boy caroler singing different characters that sing songs not to advance the plot so much as to uh, uh, to kind of enrich the world mm-hmm. that we're operating inside of. Great. I, I think in recent years, there have been a lot more plays with music. Um, yeah. Even on yeah. Broadway. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, that, that particular style, you know, it's more Brechtian, you know, it's yes. more that these people are now singing this song to get this idea across to the audience um, and to kind of not uh, to kind of mess with the artifice of musical comedy, you know, or musicals where suddenly it's only burst into song. The idea with, with bursting into song is always that you, what you're saying can only be um, communicated in this much bigger way. You know, it's a way that if we lived in that world, it would be a noisier, but also that people would express things. Music is a way to express what cannot be simply put into words. You yeah. you can hear somebody can say they're sad and you can understand it intellectually. But if you hear sad music, we all have the same response to it. Unless, yeah. of course, we're psychos. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's what you do in a musical and in a play with music. When you're just, you know, you're doing it in a different way to try to interact with the audience emotionally and, and intellectually in mm-hmm. those moments. Because they have to think of why is this song not just, you know, why is the guy just not breaking into on the street where you live or something, but doing it in a different way. Yeah, in a musical, the, the, it's given that the fourth wall is going to be broken. And so people have become used to that and can still stay in the world. Whereas in a play with music... It's Brechtian, as you say, because it makes you think about, oh, why do they play this song here now? Uh, What is it telling me about the message they're trying to give me? It kind of makes you, as you say, it makes you think. Right. It's a different, like I said, that different style of, of, you know, talking directly to the audience about the play you're in, rather than just, and not just, but rather than expanding your heart for the audience, you are putting us all in a theater. And going, this is what's happening right now. Um, so it's a very yeah. specific, different style that the Mime Troupe has used in the past. But like I said, most of our shows are more musical. Yes. You know, traditional musical. Right. Um, so this is also uh, different for us. Oh, okay. Besides now, the fact that it's a radio play. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's a radio play. And I, I would like to... Um, I'll just say, this is the second time that Michael and I have talked. Yesterday, I um, I forgot to push record. <laughs> but it's fun, because uh, I was thinking about something. We were talking about the Mime Troop yesterday, and the name of the Mime Troop. And there might be people here who don't understand why it's called the San Francisco Mime Troop. And I was driving down the road this morning, and I was thinking that 
it might like if somebody didn't know what the San Francisco mime troupe was, they might think of young um, skinny men in tight clothes <laughs> with white makeup. Yeah. Climbing invisible ropes uh, as a troop, you know, yes, as a troop, like uh, running down the street, you know, but that's not what it is, right? Not exactly. Yeah, I was thinking when we started talking, I was like, it's more like we're continuing the conversation we were having yesterday. <laughs> People are like dropped into the middle of this conversation. Very like, strange. Yes. Yeah. So it's like, hi, I'm Michael Jean Sullivan, <laughs> and I'm the um, resident playwright, actor, director with the Tony and Obie Award-winning San Francisco Mime Troupe. <laughs> and um, and so the mime bit. So so mime. Is, is the definition is the exaggeration of everyday life in story and song. It doesn't have to be silent. I'm wearing leotards trapped in a glass box, pulling a rope against the wind or yeah. whatever. Um, that is a type of mime. Yeah. Mime comes from the word mimic. Uh, in ancient Greek theater, they would use there was mimos. You would use uh, uh, mimicry. Like if you want to do a play where you want to say stuff about Pericles, but you don't necessarily want to say your Pericles because he might have you thrown off a cliff. <laughs> Instead, you pick up on some aspect of Pericles that everybody will know who you're talking about, but it's not t- t- technically libel or something. <laughs> So, mimos is a, has always been this type of theater used in satire to, to exaggerate everyday life and story and song, like I said. And people know that. You go to England and people will go, oh, I went to see this panto. Oh, I loved the panto so much. Yeah. It was so hilarious. And then you go, it's panto mime. It's pantomime. And they go, oh, 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 okay. Um, yeah, English, they all sound exactly like that. So, they all sound like Maggie they, Smith on Downton yes, Abbey. Right. Oh, yeah. darling. <laughs> um, so mime is this form where you can use sound and song and all of this. It's just slightly bigger than real life. It's kind of like opera is bigger than real life or musical theater is bigger. Yeah. Um, and so, but what happened was, so up until like World War II, everybody in the United States, you know, the, uh, Long story. Never yeah, mind. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. people knew what mime was. Right. But then after World War II, um, Marcel Marceau becomes an international star. Yeah. In part because he was a, a hero of the French underground in World War II. And and they wanted to, to, to kind of share and say, France is back. Please come visit us. Here's part of our culture that we can share. He was a silent mime. And he became a huge star. And at that very time, the mime troupe had already been named with the old version of exaggerated everyday life and story and song. And so they're out there doing stuff and singing and dancing and doing all this stuff. And then Marcel Marceau is touring the, doing this massive world tour with silent mime and the mime troops like, eh, everybody will know that's different. Yeah, that didn't work. So, so between that and then in the early seventies, so, but the mime troop kept going, they'd already done their, their tours. They'd already gotten, you know, arrested. They were in the news. They were in, textbooks and stuff yeah. and then in the early 70s um uh, michael shields and uh oh i can't remember yarnell's first name shoot i'm so sorry but shields and yarnell were a uh, a silent mime uh, uh duet that worked um uh, in san francisco at fisherman's wharf and they were and nationally they, popular right i remembered them they when got I was a, a television kid. show yeah they had, a, they had one of those variety television yeah, i used shows. to watch the show yeah yeah, I did too. Yeah. But they were silent mimes, and that really cemented in a lot of people's minds that mime was silent. The mime troupe, meanwhile, wins a Tony Award, wins own Obie Awards. We've got all of this stuff. Like I said, we're in textbooks. People study us all over. 
but we still have the name and we can't change it. <laughs> so it's too late. Well, I think it's a great name. Yeah, we end up being an open secret. Sometimes I think that if the Mime Troop had changed their name, we would have been crushed decades ago, considering how radical our politics are. Our symbol is still a big red star. Yeah. We are a worker-owned, worker collectively run theater company <laughs> that is always doing our Commodore comic critiques of capitalism and imperialism. Yeah. And yeah, we would have been infiltrated and shot in our beds decades ago <laughs> if it wasn't for the fact that somebody in the FBI probably went and eh, they're mimes <laughs> what harm can mimes do yeah really <laughs> well i like the name because uh it, it it makes people think it makes people ask a question mime troop what's that you know yeah and especially when we started like this year with covid you know we were doing all of these shows we had stuff you know you know like i said still touring the country and the world doing plays about about social injustice and economic injustice and sexism and racism and classism and all of that and then this year it was like oh with covid our free shows in the park which we normally do free shows yeah. um we are a full equity company and we make a living doing this when we're doing it but we do free shows <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how you do that, but <laughs> I've always wondered. Well, we, we, we gather money after the show. We pass the hat, just oh, like that's the company. Right. We we would uh, in the in the early days when I was but a child. Um, the mind troop would do shows, and they would pass the hat after the show, and there were like a hundred people out there, and they would you know give some money, and and they actors would divide the money up after the show. Now we have audiences of thousands of people. And so, I mean, we did one show where we opened to at least 5,000 people one time yeah. uh, in, in uh, Dolores Park in San Francisco. So we get audiences of thousands and we, uh, you know, and we still pass the hat, but people just are more generous than they were. Some aren't. Some are like, I'm giving you the same buck I gave you in 1970. But other <laughs> people have kind of realized the time has changed. Yeah. So between that and certain supporters and foundations and money from the NEA, our tax dollars, we should get them. But right we don't on. take money from corporations, which makes us very different from a lot of other you theater don't companies. Take money from corporations. We, do, we yeah. don't do corporate sponsorship. You well, know, we don't. You know, the Bank of America, Wells Fargo, AT and T, PG and E, Mime Troop is not going to happen. Um, that's just part of our core belief uh, that once you start taking money from the big capitalists, they'll try to manipulate you. They will try to control you. They will try to blunt your message about them and capital. Yeah, I, having seen a number of your plays, I don't think that would work out. Yeah, so we don't want that money, and interestingly, they haven't tried to give it to us. So, but yeah, so we and you know, like I said, we're a uh, you know an equity company, and we have all of these uh, all the benefits, and we're worker owned, and all of that. I, I, and I can't remember why I started talking about that. Uh, uh, we, uh, I don't know. Yeah, we're just, just talking about it. The conversation. I, I, yeah, oh, I remember oh, going well. to Dolores Park and seeing your shows and pass yeah. the hat being passed around. It, gosh, yeah. I think the, f the first time I went was uh, mid eighties. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm -hmm. There yeah. was a couple and hundred so, people there. It's a it's a it's it's a form of theater closer to you know the commedia troops that would come into town come yeah. into some little italian town find out who are the rich people who are the famous people who's the local pantalone what is the political situation then they would go back and they would incorporate all that into a show they already had then they would do the show get money and get the hell out of dodge before they could be thrown in jail yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're more related to that 
uh, that idea. But, but in the city, in the, in the uh, what, the, the late 60s, early 70s, you, you you were thrown in jail, right? Oh, yeah. The Mime Troop was part of the early free speech um, uh, battles. And the, and the idea that uh, at the time was that, you know, the Mime Troop was coming in to do free shows in the park. But they were talking about, you know, capitalism and, and the uh, Vietnam War and civil rights. And the city said, basically... Wait a minute. We control these parks. You shouldn't be able to say whatever you want. Yeah. You know, and this and the troop said, well, actually, we should be able to say what we want because this is a public space. This is a city park paid for and supported by city dollars, which are tax dollars. This is free space. This is the commons. Yeah. And so the mime troop was arrested like at the beginning of a show. They had set up and if you try to say anything, you'll be arrested. And there are cops right there. And Ron Davis, who was the founder of the company, uh, stood up and said, the San Francisco Mime Troop presents a bust. And the cops came in, arrested them. Wow. And they ended up in court and different people. They were fundraisers for the Mime Troop. People don't know this, that uh, Bill Graham, the great rock and roll impresario, yeah. was the financial manager for the San Francisco Mime Troop. Wow. When the Mime Troop hmm. got in court... And was needed to raise money for their defense. Graham thought, hey, maybe we could do some kind of, a, I don't know, a concert to raise money. And so they got all of these great bands, you know, Quicksilver Messenger Service, Jefferson Airplane, all of these bands from the, uh, from the you know, the Summer of Love together. And he rented a space and they did this concert to raise money. And then Graham started thinking, wait a minute, we can do this a lot. And so they started being regular concerts to raise money, defense fund for the Mime Troop, help the Mime Troop take the show over here or over there. And then eventually Graham realized the real money was in concert promotion. So he left the Mime Troop and became Bill Graham Presents. Oh, my God. I had no which idea. Which in many ways still exists. You know, they, they, they still give us. And, and he, but he always supported the troop after he left. He always, if we needed extra money, he would give money. And by the time I got to the troop, he was still doing that. Uh, he hired the troop. We came down and we sang at a rock concert at Laguna Seca Days. You know, he would still, if we were hard up, we could always ask Bill Graham. And it's super cool. Very nice of him. You know, he, he didn't great. forget us. That guy was, yeah. a, what, a, what a San Francisco personality he was. Yeah. And a yeah. great promoter. And a great. promoter of the arts and selfless as hell. That was a great, I love that guy. I, yeah, I remember when he died, yeah. I was really sad. I was too. That was really tragic. Yeah. Because he, he gave a personality that things like, you know, Live Nation or, or uh, um, what is it? Uh, that other Ticketmaster and all these different things, these different promoters don't have that sense of what they do in the community. Yes. And what, and that rock and roll was this revolutionary thing of bringing people together and, and celebrating a completely different style. And he understood that. Yeah. And so he always brought his personality and his, and his passion to stuff. I mean, there are still some promoters and producers like that, yeah. but it's gotten so corporate now and so saney that it's not, a, it's not the same kind of wild fun it was, but Bill Graham understood that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I definitely miss him. Yeah. And I, I had no idea he was, he was connected with Mind Troop. Oh yeah. He days. acted a little bit and then he went on to, uh, and then he, when he realized this is a way I can support this company by, by doing this, it changed his life. And it, yeah, I mean, it changed a lot of stuff. Yeah. And people don't even know. Yeah, he was our guy. 
Well, you guys are such a huge part of history of San Francisco over the last 50 years. It's amazing. Oh, oh the, the, the Grateful Dead. Yeah. They used to be called the Warlocks. That was their, their name before that. Yeah. Their very first gig where they decided to change their name to something else, the Grateful Dead, was a mime troupe benefit. Oh, really? Yeah. Did they, did so they the come up with the name because the of the show, or did they just come? Just no, do it they time? just were like, we, we don't have that anymore. And I think it was Phil Lesh was actually in the Mind Troop band for like oh. three years before, wow. before he was in um, The Dead. So like I said, there was a very tight connection in that period between rock and roll and activist theater. Yes. Like you, so they were all arrested like the same time as Lenny Bruce and those, those yeah. people. And then, um, last year or two years ago at my troop, I, ah, the son of one of those activists, what was his name? I went over there and I talked to your artistic director and mm-hmm. Ginsburg. Uh, Oh, which one? Oh, oh, you mean Mario? Yeah. Savio. Mario. What's his yeah. last name? Yeah, so Savio. Yeah, Savio. Yeah, Mario Savio. Yeah, Mario Savio, yeah. who was, you know, this great uh, activist, speaker, passionate fellow who, uh, it, for a lot of people, he is emblematic of the free speech movement as it erupted at University of Berkeley. His son is in the mind troupe. Yes. He's <laughs> you know, musical director, compo- and he's composer, lyricist. He's working with me on Red Carol right now. I'll have to get in touch with him later today, as a matter of fact. There you go. So, yeah. So those that tradition and how that lives on, one of the lines that I put in um, uh, this past summer, the mind troupe. Oh, okay. Now I can reel this back. <laughs> Let's go back to where, where I started to diverge. <laughs> the idea of mimes on the radio. And how much that confuses people. The idea, <laughs> Violet, what the hell are you doing on the radio? It's just like, it's like a Zen lesson yeah, or something. Pure silence. Um, right. But we, we made this decision because of COVID. It's like, damn, we've got to do something else. Let's do radio plays. So we did 20 weeks of the San Francisco Mime Troops Tales of the Resistance, which was these different ideas of things coming in with different storylines about police brutality and about uh, public health workers and and uh, um, unemployment and corporations taking over and stuff. We did this as this, like I said, uh, 10 episodes, 20 weeks, free on the radio, and we got radio stations across the country to play the series. Um, and Daniel had to come up with all of this underlying music for radio plays because it's very different than a regular play. The, 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 the feelings that you get from the music and, and how that threads through it. Yeah. Um, so when we came around, we got to the end of the summer and we were like, that was great. Everybody had a great time. We worked with actors all over the country. We, we had our, uh, um, one of, we had one song written by a guy who's in Switzerland right now. Um, he wrote music and lyrics for one song. Um, he's actually Daniel's cousin, Jeremy Mage. Um, and so th- it opened up our world in a way. And we were like, we don't want to let go of this. Even if next year, if COVID, if, if the vaccination works or the many vaccinations work and the parks open up and we can do shows again, free in the parks and around the country, we still want to keep doing the radio plays. And so we were like, how can we keep our presence in the radio world, to keep this idea of activist theater, not preachy, didactic theater, but fun and entertaining activist theater across the world. Yeah. And it just so happened I had my adaptation of A Christmas Carol. 
Red Carol, it's called, right? Red Carol, yeah. yes. And um, and it's going to be playing on radio stations in the Bay Area. And then mm-hmm. it was December 11th, I left my Yes, it so starts it, yeah. December 11th. It'll be on the radio stations. And, and like I said, we're trying to get... Uh, the stations around the country also like we had a station some a couple of stations in the midwest and a Great. station in washington dc to try to get as many stations as we can and the other thing is with uh red carol so it's an interesting story um so i i wrote the adaptation of red carol because i felt like people had misunderstood and misrepresented what dickens was trying to do with christmas carol we live in a post-Christmas Carol, post-Dickens world, and, and it's so – he changed the world so much with these stories that we no longer see the change. You know, when, when people think uh, – they see Christmas Carol and they go, oh, it's this cute story about this one mean guy. And if everything else – everything else is great, you know, you'll see it and – the play starts off and it's London and everyone's smiling and happy and there's Christmas songs going on and, and young children are begging, but they get money and they're happy and the people who give them money is happy and everything's fine. And then this one cloud of Dick of Scrooge walks in and he's terrible. And if only he would change, everything would be great. Yeah. But the problem is almost all of that is wrong. The poor laws in England at the time made it almost illegal to give money to starving people on the street. And it was illegal for them to beg. People were begging, not out of the joy of Christmas, but to keep from starving to death. And it was seen as okay, because with a history of the aristocracy and the nobility, the English really had a philosophy. And and because they were the center of of an empire, this philosophy spread everywhere that you get what you get because that's you're you're predestined for that. Mm-hmm. If you're well off, it's because you're naturally a better person. Yeah. You're born better, you live better, you deserve it from birth. And if you're poor and if you're starving, if you're destitute, if you're diseased, what all of these things have happened to you during your life, that's your lot in life because God has ordained it that way. You were born there for a reason. And all of that is your your fault. But don't worry, in the next life Things will even out. Yeah. But right now, if you're poor and hungry and starving, that's on you. you yeah. It's not just it's not just that you can work your way up because their system didn't have a work your way up part. It, it was, was ordained your, by God. Yeah, it's like Calvinism a cat, and all that stuff. System. Yeah. yeah, and you're supposed to suffer in life. Yeah, unless of course you're rich. <laughs> um, and so Dickens looks at this world and and because he grew up poor, but he did manage to work his way up through his talent. His brains, but he still wanted to say that this system is wrong. There is, these people aren't naturally better. They're not a different kind of person. They're all just people. And the idea of a commonality of humanity, which the English at that time in many cultures just didn't recognize, Dickens invents it. For the Western culture, <laughs> this idea of, of sharing, give, if you're well off, giving money to someone who's not as well off because they're a fellow human being, you know, it's almost from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Um, the idea that these are your fellow humans and, and uh, uh, they, what you share with them is much greater than the differences between you and them because of skin color, because of religion, because of race, because of whatever. That idea 
of us all being in this together. Dickens invents that, that those characters. Uh, Fred's speech when he talks about, you know, we're fellow human beings and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. Audiences hear that every year, but it's just that much in the play. Or when the charitable people come in and they're like gathering money up for the poor so that they don't have to go to a workhouse and don't have to go on the treadmill. Those ideas of just helping people because they're your fellow people. Like I said, it was almost illegal at the time. And the idea, Americans especially, or, or not even just Americans, moderns in the West, the idea of the workhouse and the treadmill... You know, we hear it every year when we see the play. But what is a workhouse? It is a place that you are taken or have to go because you can't get a job. And they throw you in a workhouse. In workhouses, work was so Puritan. It was work for work's sake. They used to have this thing in a workhouse that was a box. And it was a box full of rocks. And it had a handle on the side you had to turn. It didn't do anything. It was simply difficult. And that was supposed to make you a better person. Just work for work's sake. Yeah. And when people see Christmas Carol and they hear, oh, the treadmill. And they're thinking, hey, it's like 24 hours. <laughs> you work those calves. And it's like, no. The treadmill was a huge like barrel-like thing with a ladder on the side that you're climbing up while you're chained to it yeah. all day long. To, 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 to improve your soul. It's just to keep you better. And then eventually they realized they could also like grind wheat with it and corn. Yeah. So they started putting it to putting these people to work, but they're not paying them. You're, you're basically in a prison because you're poor and you're being put to work all the time. And all of it is, you're not given good food. You're not treated well because you're not supposed to get um, addicted to the generosity of the workhouse. You're not supposed to get feel good with the ease of the treadmill. So they're may, always making it harder and harder. Um, it's horrible. Yeah. But when the audience hears that every year, when they see Christmas Carol, they're like, meh. Oh, that, that does. That sounds weird. I'm never going to have to deal with that. You know, I'm never going to have to deal with this idea of a society that sees being poor as making you a lesser human being. But we are increasingly shifting towards that. We have been over the last, you know, really since Reagan was elected, this idea shifting back to a pre-Dickensian social attitudes. Don't give, I mean, San Francisco tried to pass laws against money, giving money to the homeless. You know, they're like, oh, no, no, no. You just give them a, uh, give them a piece of paper and they can go somewhere. Yeah, and it was like, What's wrong with you? <laughs> giving money to the poor doesn't encourage, the, or not the poor, the homeless. Yeah. Giving money to the homeless doesn't encourage them to be homeless. <laughs> it's not like, hey, this is really working out for me. That is such a weird, libertarian, heartless thought that I'm surprised those people weren't run out of every city where they made, tried to push that as a concept and as a, as a protocol. It is so wrong. And we never apply that rule to the rich. And the only Getting the only the ho- quote unquote homeless that it works out for are the ones who are con artists. Yeah, yeah. It's not and, the and, actual homeless, right? And do yeah. you really want to pass rules that it's kind of like the thing? It's kind of like what the Republicans have been trying to do in the last election, which is we're going to throw out all of these votes 
because we might have evidence that three or four votes. Exactly. Wrong. It's like, no, you throw out those three or four votes. You don't disenfranchise all these people. And in the same way, with people who are destitute, people who are homeless, people who are simply unfortunate at this particular moment, you don't go, well, we can't help any of them because some of them might be criminals. Exactly. Yeah. That's just being a selfish dick. That is just a self-justification. You know? Totally. And it, does, it like you say, it never applies to the rich. Right. And, and how many selfish dicks are there who are rich, like super rich? And we rich. give them There's all of these tax breaks. Countless. We give, we give them so much money. We give yeah. them so many breaks. We give them so many contracts for, you know, for municipal public works and stuff. And then when they, when they defraud the public, you know, we, might, we may ask them to pay the money back. But that doesn't mean the next corporation, the next rich person doesn't get the same deal. We don't judge all of them and no. treat them as a society the way we treat the criminal elements of the aristocracy, but we're always encouraged to do that with every all the working class people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no, and like comedy. you say, since Reagan, it's gotten worse. I was just talking to my wife about that. She's from France. She didn't know it. And, mm. I, I, and most Americans don't realize it because they, they were enchanted by Reagan's ability to speak in front of people and seem like a great yeah. leader and your grandfather and everything. But behind the scenes, he did some awful, horrible things to this country that we're yeah. still suffering from and right. it, that are actually being increased. That's why I'm so, so happy Biden won the election. Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, there's a chance... I mean, it's, I mean, it's I know definitely he's not a better progressive, than having, but, hmm? it's better than having just a con man, which is what we had for yeah. the last yeah. four years, was just a, a failed businessman con man as, who would say anything to convince people. But that gives you an idea of how messed up things are in this country, yeah. that people who are proudly in the working class would rather believe a billionaire is their representative, you know? It's crazy. And people... Yeah, but but you know, it's like you should be proud to be in the working class, and this is a big part of Red Carol. Is so so what I did with Christmas Carol was make it more from the working class perspective. Yeah. Like I said, the idea that Scrooge represents the one person who, if everything change, if he changes, everything changes, is just a lie. Dickens wrote the book. It's like Scrooge. That's a mindset, a, a general mindset. He is the worst example of a general mindset about how you see other people, how you uh, deny your common humanity, how it's all about profit, how it's all about what can you achieve for yourself yeah. and the acceptance of different types of human beings on a, on a, on a, like a ladder of evolution or something. He's an example of this common philosophy that dickens saw around him at the time so so that making that shift part of it is remembering that you have to have pride in yourself and what you're doing and how you demand that if you're if you make a living in this country if you work for a living like if you didn't Make, if you didn't have a job, you wouldn't have money. You didn't, you haven't inherited anything and you're not living off of investments. You're in the working class. Yeah. Now, there are people who've made so much money that they can stop working. They're no longer in the working class. They are still, they are in the capitalist class. Yeah. But it's just owners and workers, you know, people who make money off of their investments. 
capitalists yeah. and people who make money off work, the workers. There's no middle class. Right. Middle class is just an invention of the capitalists to separate, to divide the workers. Middle class is workers with a, with a mortgage. Middle yes. class is workers themselves as upwardly mobile to be a boss rather than seeing all of the other workers as their brothers and sisters in in a movement yeah you know yeah. it's so easy to divide the workers with oh this person's black and oh this person's gay and oh this person's trans and this person's an immigrant this is a woman this is you know and it's like that's done to us and it wasn't always like this in the united states yeah. saying that 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 period of you know, Workers United and the United Front and international working organizations yeah. where people were proud to say they're in the working class yes. instead of working as a barista somewhere and insisting that you're middle class it's like, or, or you're, that you're a capitalist. Yeah. It's like, you're not a capitalist. Are you making money off your capital? No. Then you're not a capitalist. But by having that, that thing in your head of, no, I am, it's like capitalists – Capitalism becomes like it's democracy. It's it's what we live in. It's what we have to have. And it's like no, it's not. There are other systems. Yeah. yeah. And so what I wanted to do another thing is to see Christmas Carol as Red Carol from the workers' perspective. So I uh, so it's from the perspective of uh, Cratchit. Cratchit telling this story to the audience. Um, some other background. So when I first wrote. Uh, Red Carol, it was a stage play. Um, and, it, and it had it, and we did a reading. The first reading of the play was done at Occupy Oakland. Yeah. And we were. <laughs> was it know, in the park? It was in, uh, in front of um, Oakland City Hall. Oh, yes. Yes, I remember Plaza. them. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, and, you know, it was like Christmas Eve, I think, and we did the reading, and we were maybe going to do like a tour. People were like, "Can you do a tour of Occupy camps next the following year to do Red Carol over and over?" We were like, "Absolutely!" We got press AP sent a reporter. There were photographs on the cover of the LA Times and press all over the place. But Occupy was brutally crushed and mm. yeah. mainly forgotten by a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so the the encampments, which are just homeless encampments with the United States has had really very much since the Reagan period again. Huh. Um, but the idea of the show was it was taking place at an Occupy encampment. That was the concept of the show. Those same encampments we'd had since the Jodes were in um, Grapes of Wrath, since the Depression, you know, yeah. people who were just itinerant workers that had to be pushed by capitalism around and lost their farms. And so, so I had it. So it takes place at an encampment, and it's a group of people at the encampment telling this particular audience this particular story to try to teach them something to say this is what this is the world we live in, and this is the world you live in, and why you know change it. And, and so, <laughs> so the stage version. Uh, one of the things that I did was I had Tiny Tim killed. Yes. Um, oh. Now the way I started with him uh, because the story is being told by. By Cratchit, mm -hmm. that means it's in the past tense. Yeah. And since Scrooge, in his telling of the story, hasn't changed, Tim's dead. Now, in the play, the way I did this was I had Tim, Cratchit was holding a, um, like a teddy bear that he would talk to. This was, this was his uh, stand-in for Tim, and it was very heartbreaking oh. for him uh -huh. that when he talks about him, he's always like, he's going to get better, but he's already passed. Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> yeah. 
Um, but uh, and like I said, I wanted to really show the brutality of the system. But when we got to doing the radio play version, um, I couldn't. There was no way to do that. So I had to resurrect Tim. So we do have a tiny Tim in this verse. Um, And he's a super cute kid and was a cute little voice. Um, But what I did also in both versions is I used what you and I know as actors is the uh, what's called the dramaturgy. All of the research that goes into it, like the stuff about what the treadmill is. um, I put that in the play. Characters step out and say, this is what the treadmill is. This is what the poor laws were. This is what the workhouse is to the audience who don't understand them. Yeah. I mean, part of my hope is that they will never be able to look at one of those other versions of fun Christmas Carol the same way again. And you also added back in things that were cut, right? Pieces. Yeah. yeah. There's this amazing, there are these amazing things. If you ever get the chance, everybody read the novel. <laughs> it's not that long. And it is, and it is. Um, there are these things you'll notice that were cut from most productions. Like there's an interaction that happens between uh, Scrooge and the Ghost of Christmas Present, where Scrooge uh, kind of uh, verbally attacks Christmas Present and says, you know, you, you keep saying you want to make people feel better and all of this, and it's all about abundance and enjoyment of life and brotherhood and love. Um, but during the rest of the year, all these ministers and priests, your ministers, your priests, your spokespeople are all saying the world's, the world, this world is about suffering. And that in the next life is where you get, you know, peaches yeah. and cream. Yeah. Right. But in this life, it's all about suffering. And, um, and the ghost of Christmas present turns to Scrooge and goes, no. Those ministers and priests, they are not on our side. They do not even know us. They only preach for their own greed, their own selfishness, their own cruelty, their own power. And, you know, put their, their preaching is about them and not us. And a lot of people cut that section because, you know, they don't want to offend the, the overly religious who think this is a story about, um, either apolitical or about Jesus. And it's not. Yeah. That part is so important to, to give people some perspective to really say this is this is our life and how you are treated in this life and what you do with this life is not totally in your hands. It is in the hands of the culture and societies we create. Yeah. And that message and, of the ghost from of Christmas present coupled with um your explanation to the audience of what the work workhouse was, what the treadmill was will give the play a completely different flavor i would suspect yeah it's much more it goes back and forth between these very serious moments like oh like the the part there's always this part in every production because it is in the book but i think that dickens understood that his readers at the time would get the context scrooge comes out of his counting house it's a bank that's where he works counting house bank Mm -hmm. he's a banker um, he comes out of his bank and there's a little kid standing there singing a Christmas carol normally. Some cute little oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas yeah. tree. And Scrooge turns and goes, bah, humbug. And the kid goes, yelp, and runs away. And the audience cracks up because right. it's an example of Scrooge being mean. Yeah. But what a reader of the original Dickens would have understood is that at that time in a big city, like half of the funerals were for kids under 10. 
because all of these families that had been pushed off of their lands, off of their farms, or, or not their farms, but also farms that they worked at because of the enclosure movement that happened in England, which was dividing up farms and stuff and, and making it so you couldn't just raise your goat and have it feed on the common. Suddenly everything was blocked off. Sure. And, and they were pushed uh, to the cities. And working in factories that they, they had no experience in. And the families got broken up. And the kids were just orphans in the streets. And so they're singing. That kid at the beginning of A Christmas Carol is singing so that they can get some money to not die. Yeah. It's not about the joy of Christmas. <laughs> it's not about how much they love standing in, in rags in the snow. They're starving to death. And so when Scrooge barks at that kid and, and, and they run away, that's a horror who understands the situation. Right. But for a modern American audience, they chuckle their butts off. You yeah. know, isn't that cute? Well, because it's all about, don't worry, Scrooge will change. Well, it's what always the, the way, kid? it's also the way it's staged, you know, the, the choices that directors make on how to stage it, right? Because, right. I mean, people expect something from A Christmas Carol. If they go to but one that, of the regular theaters and they wouldn't right. want to get your message, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a whole other story. But that, so what I did in this play is when that moment happens, I yeah. stop and talk about it. Yeah. You know, Cratchit turns out to the audience and says, this is what just happened. Yeah. This is the history of the situation. That's what everybody laughs at. Right. And I remember doing, a, a, I was in A Christmas Carol for years at ACT. And uh, I remember one time uh, after a show, I was in the in the lobby asking for money. We were in full costume. They would have us go out to the lobby, yeah. and I, we would ask for money both for Equity Fights AIDS, yeah. and and I would also say to the audience, if you don't feel like you can give us any money, please remember there are people who live on the steps of this theater who could use any extra change or anything that you have. Yeah. And I remember a, 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 a patron, probably a regular subscriber, who said, after we were asking for that, and I said that, she said, how dare they ask for money after a show like this? What? And, it's Christmas! She completely <laughs> missed the point of everything. Christmas Carol, as a play, has become a family tradition. Yeah. It's a holiday tradition. The message of Christmas Carol isn't the holiday tradition. It's going. Yes. Going to be the show is tradition, not learning anything from it. Right. And, and theaters struggle because many of the theaters totally understand and love the story and the message of it. But because they're owned by banks, because their subscribers are dicks, whatever, they shave off the activist part. Yeah. So much so that the original inspiration for me doing this adaptation was talking to a prominent artistic director who said in passing well dickens didn't mean this to be an activist story he wasn't an activist writer and i was like he's have you read any of his what? work <laughs> right they had justified in their head that no there was no 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 he's not trying to make a point it's like have you read hard times have you read david copperfield have you read these uh, the chimes which is a brilliant story which yeah. is a companion piece to to uh, a christmas carol which everybody should read also all of his um, works are commentary on those right. who are put down in society yeah. all of them i can't think of any that aren't his own father when it was taken into a workhouse i mean these are uh, you know a debtor's prison rather a debtor's yeah. prison um so all of these things that he talked about that then changed 
debtors' prisons, in, in part because of, like, David Copperfield, because of the story of, of how, how wrong that is. So, this um, misunderstanding, misrepresentation of Dickens as this activist is part of why I've had such a hard time getting theater companies around the country to do Red Carol. Oh, I see. Well, I didn't mean that they shouldn't when I said... No, no, no. No, <laughs> but it's I, not. It's that the theaters are like, we're so progressive. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I've got this great, ver- this very activist, labor-oriented you know, version of uh, A Christmas Carol called A Red Carol. And they're like, we can't do Dickens. We, because he's like this old chestnut and nobody cares. And, and it's just, you know, it's what the big theaters do. It's their yeah. cash cow. And I'm like, no, but we need to take this writer back. We need to take this, this activist back into our fold yeah. rather than just going, um, in letting him be invalidated by us because the rich and the rich theaters have mis- misappropriated and, and misrepresented his work. You wouldn't want that to happen to, you know, like Toni Morrison, you know, right. there, you wouldn't want that to happen to, you know, some great uh, uh, commentarian uh, uh, to Coates. And it's like, oh, well, they're doing this version of, of, of uh, Toni Coates' uh, work. So therefore, we can't do anything with that. And it's like, no. Hey, why don't you make a play? Why don't you write a play based on a to- Toni Morrison novel? It, I've actually been in a play based on a oh, Toni Morrison one? I did jazz oh. at Marin Theater. Oh, God, it's so hard to remember how long ago. It's a year and a half. Oh, yeah, I remember. Um, I didn't go see it. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a fun mm-hmm. show okay. in its own murderous way. Um, <laughs> but but finding things, uh, uh, you know, different different works by different people. Like, I've, I wrote... I'm, my read, I'm reading The Bluest Eye right now. I think it would be oh, a yeah, great that's a play. Good, there, is a, there is a very good play version of that. Oh, there is. Because the, I th- I've been reading it and said, this would be a great play. It's even kind of written like a play. I mean, yeah. there's all these different little stories. Lorraine like Hansberry Theater, um, um, Stanley Williams at Lorraine Hansberry Theater, uh, he passed away, but he's their ex-artistic, he was artistic director and founder. He worked for like a decade on trying to find a way to do A Bluest Eye, and they Finally, you know, before he passed away, just shortly before he passed away, they finally put up their production, and it was brilliant. Um, I bet. So there are works out there, but okay. like for myself, the the adaptations that I've done, like you know, doing Red Carol, yeah, and uh, my adaptation of 1984, which has has you know, it's from a particular point of view, but it's played. It's in five languages. It's published in two languages. It's played around the world. Wow. When COVID hit. When the COVID shutdown hit, my 1984 was playing at the Alley Theater in Houston, which is a big theater. Yeah, it was on a national tour with a New York theater, the uh, um, uh, oh shoot, the Aquila Theater or Aquila Theater as they yeah. pronounce it um, theater, and it was playing in Seattle. All three had to stop. Uh, and it had just closed in Los Angeles before that with Tim Robbins playing the lead. Oh my God! Yeah. Well, that so, is exciting. Yeah, it was it was except cool. for the and part where t- it had to close, <laughs> right? Um, but that you know, picking something that you're going to do as an adaptation, mm-hmm. it's it's like how interesting is it, and what are you seeing? What is your what are you adding to it as the adapter? That you're because you, there's all the stuff you can't say. So what you pick, the way you pick to go through it, is how you're affecting the audience. Yeah. My 1984 is about the audience and how we accepted. We accept torture in our names, how we accept warfare, how we accept all this propaganda that we kind of know is a lie, but we still accept it. Why why weren't we just 
so outraged and in the streets when Abu Ghraib happened. Yeah. You know, or right. with Guantanamo. Right. Why are we not, why, what sort of person would accept that? And how badly have we allowed our society to twist those people who are committing the, those um, uh, war crimes and, ter- and, and torture? And those people have to come back and live amongst us. Yeah. You, know? you don't know if the person sitting next to you on the bus is somebody who was, um, you know, torturing somebody in Guantanamo. You know, don't we still have kids in cages down at the border? Yes. Does anyone yeah. talk about it anymore? No. Right. I mean, those kids that are locked in cages, those, all of these terrible things that are done in our name uh, corrode us as people. Yeah. And so in my adaptation of 1984, it's about uh, other people being corroded by their acceptance of what must be done in their name because they're in danger. Very much what the Republicans and Trump did. Yeah. You know, you're in danger. You're Fear. always in danger. And if I can make you afraid all the time so that you need think you need a freaking gun to go to Starbucks, um, if I can make you afraid all the time and you will see me as your savior, I can get you to do anything. Yep. I can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, as he said. I, and he was right. Yeah, I know. You know, there are people in progressives who were like, oh, my goodness, that's a terrible thing to say. And it's like, yeah, but he was right. Yeah. He could have killed somebody. Yeah. He could have killed one of his followers. Remember when uh, there was that, that video of him in Erie, Pennsylvania, when he was running for his reelection? And he's, it's cold. It's an outdoor rally. It's freezing. People have icicles hanging off of their noses. <laughs> and he says to the crowd that he is trying to inspire to vote for him. I wouldn't even be in Erie. If it wasn't for all, of, I had to do this for COVID and yeah. all of that. You like Erie, why would I come to Erie? Why would I come to Erie? Yeah, and they start that laughing. That should lose him votes. People should go, wait a minute. That means what he's saying is he doesn't really care about us. No, they all started laughing. And they all laughed and took it. And it yeah. was like, because they're so afraid. Yeah. And that, and that one of the things in 1984 is, you know, the, you know, uh, war is peace, ignorance is strength. Yes. You know? um, that acceptance, like I said, if you have to take a gun everywhere with you in the real world that means you're a coward that means you're scared all the time yeah and but in trump's world in the republican world in the world of fear world of 1984 it makes you brave right but if but if somebody if there's a scary situation and someone can walk in and out of it without a gun that's bravery yeah Always feeling like I got to go pick my kid up from school. I need a gun. I got to go. I'm going down to pick up a muffin. I need a gun. Yeah. That means you're scared. I'm going to go do some civil protest and I need a, a, an AK 47 on my back. Right. Because nobody's going to attack you. So, but we've accepted this double think. Yeah. You know, right. This twist of reality that, uh, so anyway, so that's why I wrote 1984. I think anytime you're doing an adaptation, having, Putting it in your world and going, this is the immediate effect I'm trying to have is part of activist theater. You know, right. it is the goal. And you don't want to preach to people, like I said, but you want to have a point of view. Yeah. You know, you want to have an objective. Uh, when I teach playwriting, I always tell people, if the audience leaves the theater, essentially the same pe- people they were when they entered, you failed. And if you can only change one person... You failed because you need to change more people than that. Yeah. You know, that the goal is to change the whole world. That's what you shoot for. 
when yeah. you're writing stuff. To, yeah. If everybody saw the play and everybody understood it, everything changes. It's like raising the stakes when you're an actor. You know what? It's no. Yeah. There's no use in doing things halfway. Right. You got to go for it. You got to go for it. Maybe yeah. you won't succeed, but yeah. then you try again. You know. Otherwise, you're just kind of sitting around, and 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 you want to be to participate to inspire people. Nothing is not a greater feeling. Okay, I can think of one, but you know, you don't want to talk about that on the radio. Uh, <laughs> then inspiring people, you know, yeah. doing mind trip shows and having people come up to me afterwards and going, you know, I was about to give up. I didn't feel like there was anything else, or or I'm a teacher and I don't feel seen. But we have a teacher character who's super passionate about doing stuff. Yeah, we did. You know, where I put in a uh, not I uh, I was working with uh, Tanya Schaefer on this one scene of, in a play that we were writing um, together. And uh, and she wrote this one scene, and she put in a um, a letter carrier. And so when I worked with her on the scene, and we kind of bumped up all of this stuff about the letter carrier, and and gave them um, a, you know music. Letter carriers came up to us, and they were like, "Thank you so much," because we are. They were saying how they're frequently the first responders. They're the people who find people who've passed out. They oh, yeah. call in nine one one. They know the community, and they say we're part of it. And, and they were just like, "Thank you for seeing us." Yeah. And that those feelings that you can get when you're doing something that's not just about you and your mommy. Yeah. You know. Yeah. When you're writing the play, I don't want to see your public. Uh, psychosis. I don't want to see your psychiatry on stage or how you work out problems with your relations. I don't care. <laughs> the question is, what does that have to do with the audience? And there may be a way it does have something to do with the audience. But if you write it just to to, to make yourself feel better, to work out your issues, who cares? Oh, that's, I know. That's me. It shouldn't be theater in order for it to be active, in order for it to be the place what the community comes to. It's the place where people come to get answers to societal problems. All these issues are going on, and there's an analysis going on over there that's entertaining, and it's got songs and dancing and puppets and trained weasels or whatever. And and you go and see that to be entertained, but to also to learn about the community and maybe have some stuff answered for you. And so the great place, like like, uh, A Long Day's Journey into Night. It talks about these family dynamics in a way that still touches people. Yeah. It's still, it's like, what is the society? Is my family, is the society in microcosm? Yeah. You know? And what are the power dynamics? And, you know, that's, that's still a family play, but it, it still affects people. Yeah. All, you the, know? A great, all the great plays make you think about, well, what does this say about me? Where am I in this situation? How do I relate to the people in my life, given what I just saw happening up there, or, right. or challenge your own values. I mean, values. I mean, one of the things I love about Mime Troops plays and ones I've seen, uh, I always there's a lot of satire, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a lot of. Um, I mean, sometimes I have to go. Oh, I don't know about that, you know, and it, it makes me think. Like, why am I questioning it? You know, right. what? Where? What? Where do I stand on this? You know, it's co- and it can be uncomfortable, but that's, well, that's okay. We shoot for, yeah. You know, I think the mind troop is always done, and I definitely shoot for that. What is the the tacit the injustice that we're presenting on stage? How is the audience? How has the audience given their tacit approval to this 
terrible situation by accepting it. Like I said, with 1984 and yeah. and the torture done in our name, but also, like I said, the 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 environmental injustice, the racism, the sexism, all the stereotypes that that the audience has accepted. Yeah, they've accepted these things, and they still they'll still on somewhere in their mind they still look up to the wealthy as if they're anything but fortunate. Yes, you know. Yeah. Um, and and so to challenge the audience in in different ways so that you know there's always this thing about preaching to the choir. People say, "Oh, don't you guys just preach to the choir?" It's like first of all, no. Um, no. Uh, uh, you not don't. when you're doing it in Mitchell Park in the middle of Palo Alto. Yeah, that's not the choir. That's not the choir. And people show up anyway. Yeah, and the audience. I mean, sometimes the choir needs preaching. Sometimes and you know what I think. Sometimes is they, they see mime troupe and people yeah. go, "Oh, let's go watch the mime show." Yeah, and then they get a right. dose of something maybe they weren't expecting. Yeah, and hopefully they'll come back. I remember two years ago we were doing Treasure Island, um, which I wrote about. The actual, for people who don't know, in San Francisco Bay, there's an island called Treasure Island. Yeah. And it was um, an army base. It was, uh, or sorry, a navy base. And it was also where uh, it was built for the, um, for one of the world's fairs. Yes. But since then, it has become so polluted with, it's so radioactive. <laughs> it is it is so unhealthy to be there. And there's people who live there in, in public housing. Right. And they and that they put public housing out there, and now they're trying to sell it as a uh, as kind of the future housing of San Francisco. Yeah. But the people who've been out there have been ill; they've been sick. There are places you can't even go. It's uh, they tell you if your kids are going to play, they can't dig in the ground. These are kids; yeah. they can't dig in the ground because something might come up. It's terrible, but it's a way for people to make money. And so it's that sort of when I wrote my Treasure Island, it's very much based on ah. you know. The, the the novel yeah but it was an ad where instead of pirates they're developers right and you know it's and the treasure is the money that could be made out of treasure island that's that's what it is the island is actually the treasure and we had sword fights and everything it was great fun mm-hmm. and so we did the show down in redwood city i think or maybe Brisbane, and it was a small crowd because we had to stuff the show in. We had to add it, so we only had a, we had a very small audience. But a guy came up and gave us like 150 bucks. He had never heard of the Mime Troupe. He had never seen a show. He had shown up because like his kid was taking a class in a in a building nearby. And he dropped <laughs> it off, and he was like, "Oh, what's going on over here?" And then he was like, "And he had just moved to the Bay Area to work in Silicon Valley, so he had dough." And he yeah. was like. This is amazing. I love it. You do this all the time. <laughs> I really want to support you guys. You know, that kind of, you know, yeah. oh, that's what theater can do. Yeah. People are either super pissed, and we do get people get super pissed, but mainly they're like, when we did the show Seeing Double, which is about Palestine and Israel, um, and we did it around the United States, we got bomb threats, you know. Yeah. We were, yeah. people were so mad. It was one of the most popular shows in the history of the troupe. We toured it around the country for two years. We took it to East and West Jerusalem. And while we were there, people were like, you can't do the show over here. Somebody will shoot you. And you can't do the show over here because they'll just throw a grenade. Actually, the only pushback we got was from the government. <laughs> um, everybody else was happy we were doing the show. And there would be dis- big discussions after the play with Palestinians and Israelis who said they had never spoken to each other. They did not know how to start a conversation with each other. Wow. So. Wow, that is something. I didn't know that you went there. How wonderful. Yeah. And so the government, the government was giving you the pushback. 
Yeah. Interesting. And they, yeah. they tried at one point to, to stop us. Um, and is like one of the, like the chief justice of the Israeli Supreme Court mm-hmm. had to come down on our side and say, no, they can do the show. Yeah. This is free. This is what freedom of speech is supposed to look like. But at the end of the play, we had a part where we had a Palestinian flag and an Israeli flag and they would cross. And that was too much for the Israeli government. They stepped in and said, you cannot show uh, a Palestinian flag. You could, sh- and we said, well, then we can't show the Israeli flag either. So what we did, this was the last image in the show. So yeah. what happened is we would get up to that point and we wouldn't do, and we would bow. And then the director would step forward who was in that, in that production. He stepped forward and said, here's how the show's supposed to end. Ah, cool. And he would tell that story. And the I audience, love it. the Israeli audience was like, our government stopped you from doing that. Wow. And, yeah. They said we couldn't show the Palestinian flag. At one point, we had a flag that said censored, and the other one said censored because the other one censored. And the government said, you can't do that because that implies we're censoring you. Uh, But you are censoring us. They said, yeah, you can't talk about it. You can't say that. So there's a power in theater that people don't understand. I was doing an interview with the Denver Post one time, and they said, well, really – can you give me one example of a time where theater really had an impact? And I said, the Civil War. <laughs> when Harriet Beecher Stowe writes Uncle Tom's Cabin, most Americans are illiterate, you know, and they don't. And the people in the North did not really have much of an idea of what slavery was. Yeah. And they couldn't read the book. But there were hundreds of adaptations of Uncle Tom's Cabin stage adaptations that played all over the country and you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of people saw that and that outraged them wow the play outraged them Mm because they couldn't read the book when when abraham lincoln meets harry beecher stowe and he says oh so you're the little lady who started this big war it wasn't the book that showed the horrors it was the play yeah interesting wow yeah. So theater can have this great effect if we use it like that. It is an amazing tool for folks, and especially if you do free shows like we do, or companies that do a free evening of something, to constantly tell. Like, I also tell people theater, strange as it sounds, is a way for the working class to talk to itself. Because you can't do that in movies, because you have to have these big corporations to yeah. get just to get distribution. You might make a great film. But to get it distributed, you need to work with corporations, and they're going to say you can't say that about capitalism. Yeah, Television, same. It's even worse. Worse. But theater, all you need to do theater is a good idea, a script, a concept, and a place. Yeah. And then you can do it. And even if it's just for the people at the bus stop, you can have an impact. Right. I mean, I think of of a musical like Hair, where they, they, with the nudity, and and the, and the, and, and, the police coming in. I guess one time they really did, and then oh uh, yeah. I mean, and what I mean that I think that shaped a lot of our uh, ideas about freedom and uh, individuality and everything that we have everything. now. Hair was the first play I remember seeing. Oh really? Yes. <laughs> My, mine was uh, uh, what musical? Uh, can't remember. I'll, I'll remember in a second. I, my parents took me to see Hair as a little kid. Oh, okay. And 
we had gone to a lot of protests. My parents took me to every anti-war protest that, around me and my sisters. Um, we were at riots, all of this stuff. Oh, my happened. parents were opposite. They were the crew cut. Oh yeah, yeah. You know the, the back then it was either black or white. Either you were the hippie yeah. or you were the uh, the the the, uh, the crew cut gang. Yeah. You know, my father had been in a, he'd been in the army. Yeah. Um, my parents were from Detroit. They came from. Uh, well, my father had a very weird history, but my mom, very much we everybody in her family worked for Ford, and they, my parents came out to California when I was uh, like three two or three and but you know the war is going on the civil rights movement's going on and so they're taking me and my sisters to every protest protests that turned into famous riots you know yeah. things were running from the cops and stuff but it was like this is your job as a citizen my mother okay here's a weird story and i have a lot of weird stories <laughs> my mother worked for bobby kennedy when uh he was running uh and for those of you who don't know <laughs> Um, Bobby Kennedy was running for president in 1968. He was the brother of John F. Kennedy, but Bobby Kennedy was different. He was younger. He had long hair. He had to sweep his hair away from his eyes. He was anti-war. He was running for civil rights. Mm. He was a completely different generation. He got rid of the mob. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He had fought against the mob. He had done all of this stuff. And he was running for president, and it was a chance for, for a lot of the stuff to get cemented into place, yeah. even that LBJ, dick that he was, had done in terms of you know war on poverty and, and the Great Society and all of this stuff. So Bobby Kennedy was running, and Bobby Kennedy was going to win because yeah. people still had a good, strong sense of, of the Kennedys, uh, even though John F. Kennedy had his definitely his ups and downs. But Bobby Kennedy was this further step towards yeah. being a progressive. He understood, even though he came from a rich family, he really understood poverty because um, he had really studied it. So, uh, Bobby Kennedy's running for president, and he was assassinated in Los Angeles right before they could, uh, he could go off. He'd won California, and he was going to go to the 1968 Chicago Convention, get the nomination, and defeat Nixon. Nixon had no chance against Kennedy. Right. Uh, but that night of declaring victory for the California primary, he was assassinated. My mother was there when he was assassinated. She worked for him. She was what known as a Kennedy girl. When he was assassinated, my mother, people thought my mother, the government, the FBI specifically, thought my mother might have been a witness. So she kind of had to go into witness protection. That night, she, the next day, she flew back to Detroit and was hiding out with her family. And when then she flew back, our whole family moved to San Francisco immediately. Wow. Um, because the FBI said, Where do you, they didn't want, they said, they didn't want the witnesses killed like they were after John F. Kennedy's assassination. So where do you want to go to be safe? And my parents picked San Francisco because they thought this is where the revolution was going to start. And they wanted to be at the epicenter of it. Yeah. So that was my parents. Wow. (laughs) They came up here. I remember going to meetings with the Black Panthers and my parents. I mean, my father worked in Silicon Valley. He's like one of the one of the first black engineers in Silicon Valley. My mother was working for different companies. Where did he work? He worked at a company at first called Amdahl. Oh, I thought you were going to say Ampex, because my dad was at Ampex. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I Amdahl. used to work at Amdahl. I was a security guard in high school. Really? Yeah. Yeah, Amdahl was started by a guy from IBM who wanted to start his own separate company, because yeah. he said IBM was too corporate. It just didn't wasn't innovative enough. So he started Amdahl, and he hired my father and a few other engineers. Uh, so my father was there for, you know, a decade or two. Um, so... 
But yeah, that period, trying to change the world, actively change the world, is uh, something that we've kind of lost yeah. in a reactionary period ever since that was cemented by Reagan. That yeah. The idea yeah. that everything used to be fine. Absolutely, it was Reagan. And it was, I was at Cal, I remember, and all, every, all of a sudden Berkeley went from a very activist, liberal, progressive school to a completely Reaganite, uh, conservative everything, like overnight. Well, remember when it Berkeley was, was cheap? That was uh, yeah, I paid like $230 a quarter right. or something. $168? I mean, it was. Did you go there? No, oh. I, well, I did. I went. They, they actually gave me a free quarter. Because oh. my grades were so good at City of San- City College of San Francisco. Oh, City College. That's what I could oh afford God. to go to. Yeah. And I ended up going to state. But yeah. uh, all these schools were cheap. Working class kids able to go to these schools. That impact. That was me. Right. Yeah. And the, 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 a lot of the Berkeley students who were in the freedom uh, rides that went to the South during the civil rights movement yeah. to yeah. register voters, they came back. And that was where the free speech movement came from. We need to talk about politics. But these were working class kids. Yeah. And when Reagan came in and he slashed all the money to the schools and Proposition 13 happened, suddenly only the, the schools are now seen as elite schools. Right. Schools where rich kids go, and that just is going to kill a great deal of the politics. Yeah. You know, the teachers might still have a sense of, well, we've got to change the world, but the students are like, why? The world works out fine for me. And suddenly, Berkeley starts looking more like Stanford, you know, yeah, no with, with the, you know, with um, all of the, the, the very conservative politics that Stanford pushes. That idea of putting higher education out of reach of the working class or making it so that if you can get there, it's because of student loans and your student loans are going to be a shackle perhaps for the rest of your life. If you get a job, you got to keep that job because you got to keep paying off these student loans. And I did not have to get student loans and I couldn't afford to go there the way it is now. We couldn't, my parents could never have paid. And also Unless you were really poor, you couldn't get enough money in aid. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. Or, you, or your only option was to take out these ridiculous loans, as you said. But that's why I didn't go to Stanford or anything like that. I went to Cal because it was basically Cheap. free. Yeah. People can believe that. I mean, one of the best yeah. schools in the country was basically free. Right. I mean, and now it's just as a, it costs the same as Stanford, as you say. And so it, there's no difference. It's cheaper to go to Harvard. Yeah. Um, and, and they always say, oh, we're, we're doing all of this outreach at Berkeley. But a great many of the students that they will do all this outreach for, you know, working class kids, have to drop out. They're like, we gave you a, a scholarship. It's like, yeah, but my parents still can't make their rent. They need me to have a job. Yeah. The working class kids drop out of Berkeley not because they can't make it. Right. But because they have to help their parents exactly. pay their bills. You know, yeah. if, we, if school was free then that would alleviate some of that. But we have to make it so that, um, you know, uh, it's like a good tide raises all boats. We need it so that the parents aren't impoverished. The parents shouldn't need their kid to have to give up their education to make sure they don't become homeless. Exactly. But it looks good on paper. A lot of schools is like, yes, but look, we've got 10,000 new working class students. And a year later, you know, 9,000 of them have had to drop out. 
But then yep. the next year they go, look, we've got 10,000 more, you know, so yep. they could promote that. But the whole society needs to change. If, if we want the whole society to change, the whole society needs to change. Yeah. It's not these little bitty things. And we have to take the profit margin out of everything. Right. You know, yeah. we've, we've got a country where um, luxuries are seen as necessities and necessities are seen as luxuries. Right. <laughs> you know, healthcare, education, clean air, clean water. Those, those are, are the you have to fight for to get funded. Yeah. And it's always how can we make money off of that? But necessities, everybody's got to have a cell phone right. that our, we have accepted that we have to have all of these things. And we see those as necessities. Yeah. And kids are grown up with having to have all these things that are actually luxuries. Yeah. Because we have the best propaganda in the world in this country. So mm-hmm. the government and corporations have all really learned how to make really good propaganda that sells people. Like, I remember when I was a kid, you'd see the Soviet propaganda, and it was laughable, you know. And you probably, and probably most of the people in the Soviet Union didn't believe it. But our propaganda is so good, like Fox News. Well, I think it sucks because I never, I, I never watch them. So I, of course, we see right through it. But the people who watch it day after day after day, it seems real to them. It seems absolutely. Real. And, and 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 the marketing, the the commercials, the uh, the endless selling of, of of social media. It it's it's scary. It's it plays on people's. It sells people's minds. It it turns people into something they're not and yeah you they go lose from being themselves to a com- you're a consumer not a citizen yeah um but you're, i would yeah, say you're an object you're a consumer you're yeah, being used you, well you are basically an uh, an obstacle between me who wants to get your money and your money yes yes you're just an obstacle in the way and how can i get around you can i fool you into giving it to me mm-hmm. can i steal it from you yeah. but i would say even as a kid you know, because I, I was I was raised in the the super left household, not not incredibly left, but um, pretty left. And so I saw the propaganda on both sides. Yeah. You know, I would see, well, this is what the Soviet Union is saying to their citizens. Yeah. This is what the Americans are saying to their citizens. They're both lies. Yeah, I didn't see that when I was little. I didn't I didn't notice the American part, except. Oh, that- God. The only thing is I lived in a really, really conservative household, and I didn't realize it. And one time, I, I love this story. I, it was uh, McGovern against Reagan uh, running, I think it was right after the Kennedy problem. Um, McGovern, yeah. yeah. Or, the next, or the next four years. That would, be, that would have been McGovern. Not Reagan, I'm sorry. McGovern, uh, McGovern Nixon. <laughs> against Nixon. Sorry, I get it mixed up. Um, and, I, and we had a mock election, and I voted for McGovern. And I was so proud of myself because I thought, well, my parents must have done the same thing. And I go home and, you know, they tell me, oh, no, we voted for Nixon. And I'm like, I, I was in shock. I was like, my parents yeah. voted for Nixon. I think Watergate had already started and he got reelected. Right. Still, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, what yeah. were you saying? <laughs> no, but I was saying the thing about propaganda, yeah. like watching the Vietnam War, which is on the television all the time. Yes. I have, oh, my God. That the difference between what we were told we were doing and uh, the what was actually happening that you know we had to destroy the village to save the village yeah. uh, idea and going out and being in anti-war protests and then seeing how they're portrayed on television yeah you know and that's so that's the first like wait a minute that's not what happened 
I was there as a kid. Yeah. And we weren't rioting until, and then the police showed up and we started running. But the way they cut it together on the news made it look like we had started the fight. Oh, yeah, and we right. Didn't. Right. And the same stuff with the Black Panthers and and the American Indian Movement and the Young Lords, all these organizations that were actively helping the community, but the way they were portrayed was extraordinarily negative and dangerous. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. how is this different from what the Soviet Union is doing? Totally. You, you, know, know? you know, I was I totally believed up until uh, maybe I was thirty years old that the Black Panthers were a terrible group of people. <laughs> I, when I was in, in college, my girlfriend uh, started going on bike rides with Huey Newton. Oh, really? Yeah, and I was just furious. I mean, do you know who he is? I mean, yeah, <laughs> I was sold on the whole thing at that point. Um, right. I mean, and I know better now. Yeah, but, uh, I always thought the, 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 the clearest that everybody should be able to relate in terms of American um, – propaganda especially towards the soviet union was remember when the soviet union still existed and for its good and bad and the amazing stuff they did and the terrible stuff they did what we always saw on the news was a little gray if yeah. you'll recall yeah whenever they show something from the soviet union it was a little gray always and the yeah. was that the women were all fat and hairy yeah dreary gray oh, people dreary, never gray, smiled horrible. As soon as the Soviet Union fell, yes. suddenly Russian women were considered beautiful. Yes, and they were smiling and happy, and we they saw happy people and happy, on the TV. And the colors were bright, yes. and, and there were all these lonely American men who were that? like, ooh, Russian brides. I always say that to my wife. I said, well, we used to see the Soviet Union on the TV when I was a kid. It ooh. was always awful. They seemed depressed. No one smiled. It was like all ugly buildings and then as soon as that turned over it was like happy people everywhere it's like right as soon as capitalism so we were choosing happened. that right was, yeah that's the thing is what we were doing was sh- just shading it. It, it, it you know it's like when when um that that famous shot of oj simpson when they put him on the cover of i think it was newsweek yeah and they newsweek. darkened him yeah you know oh, yeah yeah they made a they they they, they uh, made him very harsh looking Right, change then that was propaganda, yeah. guilty or whatever. Yeah. That's still propaganda. Right, and so those, you know, twenty-six-year-old gorgeous Russian women were twenty-five last year. They weren't fat and hairy, you know. Yeah, they didn't suddenly change. Those women had been there all the time. All of those brilliant and talented people in the Soviet Union. And if you watch video, I was watching a video recently of someone snowboarding across Russia. Really, an interesting um, video. Yeah. It's gorgeous yeah the buildings were so interesting the colors were so vibrant the people were extraordinarily nice um the snow everything about it i was like that looks beautiful um it's different than here yeah but all of that was there before right and we were told that didn't exist yes we that were kind of propaganda how did the united states end up in vietnam you know why why were we involved in this other countries trying to stop their election which is how it started um that all of these things that we're we were told about socialism about communism about the black panthers like i said and the young lords and the american indian movement and women who are a feminism you know an environmentalist all of this stuff we've been loaded with so much anti all of that propaganda but so much, uh, so much anti-human propaganda and so much pro-corporate propaganda. When someone says, oh, well, we need government to be run more like a business, that person 
is an idiot. Absolutely. Because government is a not-for-profit organization. It hides free services in exchange for tax money, like every other nonprofit theater company or, or you know, um, health company or anything. It's a not-for-profit. You can't run it as a for-profit because it doesn't have customers. Right. And so, we but, are supposed to be them. We are the right, government. We are They're, the government. Yeah. I, uh, so, so this idea that so many people, you can talk to people who, who may even be progressive. They may see themselves as, or liberal, um, but they'll still accept the idea that government should be run like a business. And it's like, how? How does that happen? It's, it's, it's something that we accepted and that capitalism has, through the propaganda, has pushed into everyone's mind. So we need... Um, you know, the rebooting of the working class, the rebooting of the country, hopefully with a new um, and hopefully legal administration, will have some sense of that. I mean, the Democratic Party is always kind of screwed because the progressive branch wants to change things. But the conservative side of the of the party doesn't want to offend their corporate sponsors. Right. You know, what do you mean legal, legal presidency or legal government? I mean, what, what I mean is basically, you know, Trump didn't win the first election yeah. um, and and has in, in, in his time in office in the popular vote. You mean? Yeah, he yeah. didn't win the popular vote, um, which the, the Electoral College, the Electoral College was created basically in the set for the same way that the, um, the Senate, which makes no sense. Exists. Yeah, right. It's basically the big agrarian states would not have joined the original colonies if because they knew that if it was just the House of Representatives, New York and Philadelphia were going to run the country. Yeah, it was just all a big right. compromise so that they wouldn't right. go away. And that compromise no longer stopped functioning a century ago when the, as the country you know basically uh, destroyed all the native peoples to make it a bigger country and there are cities all over the place. Yeah. It's it's anti-democratic. And also, what's the point of the Electoral College if, if all the electors, which I'm glad they do, go with the proportion of votes anyway? What's the point of even having it? All it's going to do is screw up the uh, – possibly screw up the popular vote like it did last time. Right. And the yeah. idea that the electors are not actually bound to do that. They can go against I, Right. That. But thank God they don't. Well, well, yeah. I mean, they have a couple times, but it hasn't, it hasn't mattered in recent history. I mean, we've entered – We've ended up the last first-term Republican president to win the popular election was George Bush Sr. Yeah, right, right. 1988 was the last time a Republican didn't run for re-election but just ran for president and won the popular vote. That's why they knew they had to do the voter suppression. Right. But when you think about it, so every time since then, the Republicans, if the Republicans own the, have the White House, they're a minority government. They're yeah, a minority yeah. party, which is also very ironic considering they hate minorities. Right. <laughs> Good um, point. Yeah. But they don't mind it when they're it. Yeah. So this struggle that we've had in this country increasingly is about minority rule. Capitalists are an incredibly tiny minority of Americans. White men are an incredibly minority of Americans. And so that small group, and, and, and it's not just, and then inside of white men, there's the working class. Right. We've got rich white men. I mean, but also 
uh, uh, just the idea that if you can divide the working class by race and by sex, Trump keeps winning certain groups, yep. you know, yep. Yep. and how does that happen? Because he's made them fearful that it, that and he's convinced them that anything that anybody else gets is less of what they have. If this person gets the right to vote, that diminishes my vote. If this person has health care, then that diminishes my health care. If yeah. they have civil rights somehow, I don't have as many civil rights. Yeah. It's a zero-sum businessman's proposition. Right. A loser, a winner equals there being a loser. Yeah. And things don't work that way. And countries cannot work that no, way. No, they can't. I also, I also think he has gotten to people on a psychological level where he uh, is sort of the, the, the prototypical bully um, yeah. who people feel they need to identify with in order to be safe. Right, because he will sue you. He loves yeah. suing people. Yeah, um, and it's just and, and it's it's more of a symbolic thing. I mean, he's not going to come to your house and do anything to you, but it's just it just brings up feelings that people have that they're not even aware of, you know, from the yeah, childhood I, or whatever. I also also wonder, it's like, when do you also worry? It's like, wait a minute, what if I was on Fifth Avenue and Trump was there and had a gun? <laughs> <laughs> he could get away with shooting me. Damn, nobody's afraid. They never, of go, they never think that. Far. Yeah. So, so I don't know. It's um, like I said, so theater in general, opportunity for us to really impact and change things. All plays are political. Yeah. You're either upholding the status quo or you are challenging the status quo. Yeah. Them's your options. That's what I love about All- Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, I wish sometimes with Shakespeare, you could stop and explain things to people like you're doing with, uh, with your Christmas Carol or Red Carol. Um, you know what I would like them to be able to stop in, in most Shakespeare. I think I mentioned this yesterday. Is to just have you know whatever uh, Richard the Third or Henry the Fourth or whoever or Henry the Fifth even just stop in the middle of the play, turn to the audience and go, you know we're all French, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know that we were conquered by the Vikings and then the French, and the French keep conquering us. Yeah. Every time you notice how every time in a Shakespeare play someone goes somebody gets booted out of uh, 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 out of uh, being king yeah. and they're like we've got to go somewhere and raise an army they go to France yeah exactly always because they're just part of France kinda you know yeah William the Conqueror started all that yeah and and you know Richard the Lionheart was French right. he spent no time in England almost yeah. they're all French yeah and. And Shakespeare did. That's the thing with Shakespeare's propaganda is that he convinced the English that the that their rulers of just a few generations ago were English somehow. And it's like, <laughs> no, they're French. They speak French in the court. It is the language of the court, yeah. you know, until a very late. Um, that's why so, so many of our legal terms are French. Yes. And, and a lot of words that we don't use... It, we we tend to use the more uh, the the more uh, Germanic words, but yeah. there are a lot of French equivalents to the words that we don't use in English that we could use. Well, like one that the one that they they talk about a lot is um, cows yeah. and chicken versus poultry. Yeah, they're the same thing. Chicken and poultry, same thing. The court used the term poultry ah because it's from French yeah. poulet, it's poulet from the French. The court used beef because with yeah cow the yeah. English the 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 commoners used the more Viking more Germanic terms you know cow yes. and chicken exactly yeah that 
you know, so when you wonder why these other words, it's because they're still speaking French or a version of French. Yeah. Um, up until, like I said, up until like Henry the seventh. Right. Um, right. So what Shakespeare does is he, a lot of his plays are propaganda to justify why the Tudors are in. Yeah. And then suddenly why the Tudors aren't in and why the Stuarts are in. Right. Um, his benefactors. Yeah, right. His benefactors. He's just justifying. And the plays are beautiful and amazing and, and startling. And there's all this great stuff in it. But there's also this seam of just propaganda. Because this is what my, the person who's paying for it. Yeah. If Wells you don't Fargo want to piss off the king or the yeah. queen. Things could get really ugly. And it comes back to why the mind <laughs> troop doesn't corporate take corporate money and corporate sponsorships. Yeah. Because there'd always be that moment where suddenly the banker would show up and save the day. Right. Um, so, so it's So the Mind Troop and your show, we should probably start uh wrapping it up. We've wrapping been it up for yeah. a long time. It's been I could go on for another few hours, but <laughs> it's fun I have to, to edit this thing. So Oh, uh, that's gonna be hard. <laughs> you might just have to go, this is a big two parter, three parter episode. Yeah, maybe, maybe. because oh, I don't shut up. So the Mind well, Troop I don't either, but like uh, I purposely let you talk because this is your thing, but my wife is telling me, do you ever stop talking? No. <laughs> I was watching an episode of Schitt's Creek last night. It was hilarious. Do you, you ever watch that show? Mm-hmm. When they were in, the, the girlfriend was in bed with the guy. It's like, he says, well, you just have to talk all the time. Well, if I don't talk, no one's ever going to talk ever again, and neither one of us will ever talk, and then what's going to happen? And if I- <laughs> yeah. That's me. It's like everybody needs to have that, I think, on some level. If you got something to say, say it. Hell yeah. Um, But I just won't stop. So the Mind Troops, Oh Red Carol, will be on, you know, radio stations, hopefully around the world. If anybody's interested, contact us if you want it on your radio station. But it'll also be on the Mind Troop website. And we'll probably might run it every year. We're thinking about doing that. It's uh, just the activist Christmas Carol that you always wanted. Yes, yes. And it's going to be on your website, definitely. Yes. And, and it starts I, on December 11th, I is believe. Is there any way we can find out what the radio schedule, radio station schedule is? That'll, that'll will be on our website. Once the station, stations are starting to kind of get past Thanksgiving now okay. and turn towards it. So there will be, like, if you go to our website now, you'll still see the radio schedule for Tales of the Resistance and okay. all of those shows and all those stations. But we're still working with those stations to set up their schedules. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are going to be, you know, like they're going to run it once or twice. Yeah. Some of them are going to try to run it regularly. But if people can't find it that way, they can also go to the Mime Troop website yeah. and just listen to it there. I would just love to listen to it on the radio, though. Yeah, it is. It's, my, I went to I went to uh, Rada years ago, and I used to listen to the radio plays on the radio there, and I I, I loved it. Well, there's England. a different feeling. Like if you go into a website and you listen to um, uh, a play or a song or something like that, as far as you know, you're the only person doing that right, right. then. But when you listen to something on a radio on the radio. It's more like going to a concert. You're having a shared experience. You know there are other people ah, doing exactly. This yes, yeah. yeah. And you can't you can't stop. You can't like oh I'm going to listen later on. So you you have to pay attention. And yeah, you have, and you have to stick with it because uh, you can't pause yeah. it. That's another thing about um, plays and theater. That every time a theater audi- a theater audience is a self selecting community of people of like minded people who've all decided for one reason or another 
to go and have this experience and see this play now. And so they can turn to each other and go, that was interesting. What did you think? Um, It is the same thing with movies. I remember one time I was going down to see a film downtown and I was at the back of the bus sitting there and, and somebody in the, in that was on the bus worked at the theater I was going to. And so I asked them about the movie and it turned out a bunch of the people on the bus were going to the movie. And so we all talked about the movie beforehand. (laughs) And we're like, what is this? And what is that? And oh, I saw this one. I saw that one. People were so hungry and anxious to have actual communication. I've done that a few times where I've actually started conversations on buses about politics with people. And it ends up becoming this big community meeting. Oh, cool. Because people want to have interactions. They want to talk about stuff. And so um, it's easy to create community, but unfortunately it's easy to make people think that that's somehow wrong. Right. You know, to be isolated. And so we, the more you keep up your sense of community, the more you're talking to people who aren't like you or your family, the easier it is to see everything as possible and to see your fellow folks as humans, like in Christmas. Love it. How do you feel? I I am so, I'm having such a hard time with the fact that my, my community, the theater community has kind of been dashed with this COVID-19 thing. I mean, I I feel lost sometimes. Like, I can't go to plays. I can't be in plays. I can't direct anything oh. except for on Zoom. Um, yeah. I, I don't talk to talk to the people I used to talk to all the time for some reason. I, like, when, that, when the virus first hit, we were calling each other all the time, and now that's stopped. I don't know what the heck's I, going on. It's very tough. I mean, yeah. I got into a group, the uh, Thursday at 7 group, which is like um, Aldo Billingsley and Jim Carpenter and Margot Hall and... Elizabeth Carter, all this huge group of Bay Area actors yeah. who um, do readings. So oh, every cool. Thursday night, there's a play reading. Oh, it's great. still not satisfying yeah. because no matter what you do with Zoom or, or FaceTime or Skype or any of them, you can't make eye contact. No. Like even and right that, here, right now, I'm struggling. I've, and I've always struggled. I'm still struggling with this Zoom thing is like – it's hard for me to. It's really hard for me to listen as well as I usually can. I get this easily distracted by my own stupid face over here. Uh, like I'm still struggling yeah. with that. I had to really train myself because I've been doing all these interviews. I've been. I mean, yeah. I've been interviewing people. Yeah. Uh, Ex mime troopers to kind of get uh, this big uh, uh, library of of interviews with mime troop people. And yeah. one of the things I've had to train myself to do is to treat it like. A phone call. So I look at the camera. Yeah, I noticed you're doing that. Yeah. 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 Because then at least when, if, if they do that, if the people I'm talking to do that, when I look back on the recording, it looks like they're looking at me. Yeah. Yeah. And it, so the, the experience of doing it feels very isolating and weird. Yeah. Uh, but if I think of it as a com- as a phone call, it feels okay. Oh, because then you can just, yeah, then you're just doing this like as if you're listening to the person. Yeah, with the thing on your ear. Yeah, I mean, when I was directing, I directed a couple of plays on Zoom, and I was getting people to do that. Look at the camera. Look at the camera. You know, I know it feels weird, but it's so much better. And here I'm not doing it. (laughs) Now I'm doing it, and uh, yes, it feels weird, but it's good for the audience. You get used to it, yeah. Yeah. Because one of the things with Zoom that what we talked about the other day, the Zoom fatigue is because when you're meeting with someone in person, you're picking up all on, on all of their physical traits and all of their the, the messages that they're sending with where their eyes are and how they're right. sitting and all of that stuff um, and their eye contact. 
And when you're on a phone, you dismiss all of that stuff and you're just going on their voice. Yeah. Zoom meetings and video meetings fool you because they're in between. You feel like you should be able to get all of this stuff from the person, but you don't get eye contact. You don't see all of this stuff. And when you try, you miss more. Right. You miss more. And you also then, uh, it's harder. It's more exhausting. Totally. Yeah. So any of the viewers out there, if you're getting Zoom fatigue, it's a real thing. Yeah. just remember, you can talk to people on the phone. I had somebody called me up one time. Yeah, I mean, I was texting somebody, and they said, yeah, so we're going to set up a Zoom meeting with you. And I was like, can we just talk on the phone? Yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, right, the phone. It's like, exactly. Yeah, good point, good point. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the camera right now. I actually feel relaxed. And, and yeah. Because when, when, I, like, when I try to watch you on the screen, it's not as the same as if you were sitting next to me. And I'm wondering right. if it's because it's two dimensional instead of three dimensional. I'm not. I'm not picking up your vibe. You know, yeah. it's like I'm. I'm something's missing, and and as I'm working to do it, I can't find it. But when I don't look right. at you, I hear. I listen better. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just that's a little lesson for everybody here right now. Zoom technique. Not only yeah. do you find out about the San Francisco mine and Red Carol coming up on December 11th, but you learn Zoom. Techniques. Techniques. <laughs> well, it's been great talking to you, Michael. Yeah, you too, right? It's uh, been fun. Really appreciate it. And I'll put everything up uh, in the notes, and then I'll also add it later once we have the dates of the radio plays. Yeah, yeah that'd be great. Yeah, okay. And hopefully we'll be able to be back in theaters and amongst each other sooner rather than later. Let's see another Christmas. You know this place? know it. I was... I worked here for years. My first job, working for old... Ebenezer! Ebenezer, where are you? Fezziwig. Yo-ho, Ebenezer. No more work tonight. Hurry, hurry. We have to close the desk, shutter up the windows, sweep the floor, and clear space. Space? For what? For what? For what? For dancing, Ebenezer. It's Christmas Eve. Now everyone dance. There is power, there is power in the land of working folk. When they stand to be workers, proud to live off their own brains and sweat, not live off somebody else's. Used to be, they knew it for two classes. Us that work in the factories, fields, and offices, and them that owns those factories, fields, and offices. And the sooner us workers are proud to be us and stop trying to be them, the sooner we get together, that's when we'll get and keep what we've been working for. There is power, there is power in the land of working folks when they stand, when they stand, and you can Merry Christmas! <laughs>